Welcome to the JMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. In fortnightly episodes, I invite journal authors to discuss recent publications, looking to add some colour to the sometimes formal world of medical publishing. We've a back catalogue of close to 100 episodes, so be sure to check it out, but not before listening to our latest podcast on gene therapy and glycogen storage disorders. Hello there. Now, our more attentive listeners may have noticed a surplus of gene therapy-themed podcasts of late. And whilst gene therapy is undoubtedly an exciting avenue to explore, um, this has more to do with a forthcoming special issue than an editorial decision by the JMD to go all in on genomics. That said, we're back with gene therapies again, but this time around discussing their role in glycogen storage disorders. Today's guest is a newcomer to the podcast, but a veteran in the field, and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Dwight Kerbel of the Division of Medical Genetics from the Department of Pediatrics at Duke University Medical School in North Carolina to discuss his recent review on the topic. Dwight, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So the glycogen storage diseases provide a pretty broad church. How many of them are there and how similar are the clinical phenotypes? Yeah, there are about 15. And, you know, there are subtypes to several of the types. So actually more than 15, if you think about the associated enzyme deficiency. They can be broadly categorized as to more liver involvement or muscle involvement. Some have both. And even among those with liver involvement, there is a, a variety of kind of presentations. It can be more of a hypoglycemia presentation, as in GSD-1, and that's one of the GSDs that we focus on, or more of a chronic liver involvement like GSD-3. And interestingly, uh, GSD-3 involves the muscle as well in most patients, so they have a myopathy and a progressive weakness. So there's really a spectrum, and we're used to that in metabolic genetics. We see that across different disorders. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. So I've done a number of podcasts discussing animal models of disease, but I think you've possibly set some sort of record here with models in mice, sheep, cattle, various breeds of dog, horses, quail, and of course, the ubiquitous zebrafish. I presume most of these are naturally occurring. How, how does one come to find Pompe disease in a Japanese quail? Yeah, that's a good story. I'm, and I don't know all the details, but there's a Dr. Kikuchi in Japan who described the model first. And they're weak. They had glycogen accumulation in the lysosomes in their muscle. And therefore, they have Pompe disease. They have the acid alpha-glucosidase deficiency or GAA deficiency. It's actually a slightly different gene that causes Pompe disease in Japanese quail than in human patients. But those quail were very valuable in that the model was brought over to the U.S. and our, our former division chief, Y.T. Chen, and his laboratory were able to test the enzyme replacement therapy for Pompe disease and get leverage to achieve FDA approval for that ERT based on the Japanese quail model that was available at the time. You know, since then, we have knockout mouse models for many of the GSDs, as well as knock-in mouse models now that have more of a missense or a mutation that is more typical for human patients. But the natural models are really fascinating. We also have dog and cat models that were discovered for, for several of the GSDs, and they've been useful in providing a large animal model to test our therapies before we go into clinical trials eventually. I guess I'd never thought about that, that you know, before we could make these models, we had to rely on naturally occurring animal models of disease. Yeah. Well, we have a model for GSD-1, one of those 
liver GSDs with severe hypoglycemia. And it was actually identified in some Maltese puppies by a dog breeder and then characterized in a medical school in Georgia and then eventually brought to North Carolina to provide a large animal model for that disease. And a lot of the, the gene therapy development has happened in that dog model. Uh, actually, now one of the gene therapies is in a phase three clinical trial in the U.S. Well, it sounds like you've quite a menagerie there, yes. um, but I guess no one's getting quail eggs for breakfast. <laughs> um, so obviously, whilst there are lots of GSDs, the gene therapy field seems to be focused on a relatively small number of them. I, I mean, I would have thought they're quite good targets. I guess part of this is about is about perceived need. Where is the attention currently falling? Really, uh, GSD1 or von Gerke disease and GSD2 or, or Pompe disease. There's, there's additional work in GSD3 on new therapies. It's kind of interesting, one, two, and three. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, perhaps those are a priority because they're more common. They were recognized more earlier, and hence they're low numbers. But, you know, as I mentioned, for GSD1, there's a phase three clinical trial of AB8 vector-mediated gene therapy. And then for Pompe disease, there are multiple ongoing clinical trials of AB8 gene therapy. And um, actually, other serotypes are under development. One of those studies was initiated at Duke and now is ongoing in partnership with an industry sponsor. I mean, it, it must be fair to say this is something of a passion project for you, because when I was looking you up, I know that you, I saw that you presented on your GSD 1A work at the SSIM meeting uh, way back in 2011. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly, my lab has been contributing to development of GSD 1 gene therapy since 1999 when I joined the Division of Medical Genetics at Duke. And I was trying to remember the, the year that we met in Brisbane because I also presented at that meeting. I think that was right around 2001. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, so we've been working a, a long time in the field and there have been some great advances since then. And it's, it's great to have contributed and to see where we are now and to look forward to, you know, the availability for treating patients down the road, we'd hope. It's, I mean, so I guess there's no one better than you, perhaps, to give us a bit more background on GSD-1A, because we've talked about 1B before, but 1A has been a little bit neglected by the podcast. So the main difference between GSD-1A and 1B is the presence of neutropenia in 1B, as well as the risk for infection. And that's that's not present in, in 1A because uh, metapoietic cells aren't really involved. So in terms of GSD-1A, it, it presents in an infant, usually around six months of age, when they're eating less frequently, they start to sleep through the night. And during that fasting, they develop severe hypoglycemia. And so the presentation is often with a seizure from hypoglycemia, and the pediatrician recognizes GSD-1, hopefully, based on the hepatomegaly, which is quite impressive, very enlarged liver, and the severe hypoglycemia. And so there'd be diagnostic testing based upon that clinical presentation. You know, the acute complications are life-threatening, including the hypoglycemia, there's an associated lactic acidemia, hyperlipidemia, very high cholesterol and triglycerides. There's a growth failure and there can be kidney involvement early on too. Those symptoms respond well to initiation of the dietary therapy, either continuous glucose feeding in the form of tube feedings overnight and frequent meals, or in a slightly older infant, they can start intermittent cornstarch around the clock to control their hypoglycemia. And so they can grow better, hypoglycemia is, is improved, their symptoms are less. But over the long term, 
even with good management of their dietary therapy, there's a risk for liver tumors. So for instance, there's a high risk of hepatic adenomas that can actually deteriorate into hepatocellular carcinoma. Say up to 50% of adults can develop adenomas and approximately 8% historically have developed carcinoma, as well as uh, chronic kidney disease presentation. And so some of the patients who live, well, you know, actually survival is quite good now, but later in life, patients can have decreased kidney function and require kidney transplant. And you mentioned there was a, a gene therapy phase three currently going on. So who, who is that for? Yeah, in uh, GSD-1, I mean, it looks very promising. The phase three study is fully enrolled and the company is completing a two-year follow-up for that cohort. They're late adolescents through adults no young children. And that's important to recognize because treating with AV in very young children is still a hurdle for the field because uh, it's felt that the benefits won't last. But these are adults who have reasonably well-controlled GSD-1. They haven't developed some of the more challenging complications. So patients with liver tumors were excluded from the study. And you can appreciate that it would have introduced some uncertainty if the patient developed or had a tumor that was increasing in size during the course of a study of AAV. And for those who aren't well aware, in mice and only in neonatal mice, just administering an AAV vector has been associated with liver tumors, actually with hepatocellular carcinomas. Uh, that's thought to be limited to neonatal mice related to developmental expression of a particular gene that can be activated to, to cause the tumors. So, you know, these are adults on treatment for GSD-1, they're taking the dietary therapy, which is uncooked cornstarch to prevent hypoglycemia that's given on a regular schedule around the clock, and then monitoring the diet and the response to diet and control of hypoglycemia underlies the endpoints for the clinical trial. So both the amount of cornstarch being taken or amount required <laughs> based on their dietary treatment as well as the timing for hypoglycemia following the meal are, are endpoints for the clinical trial. And there's been some improvement in, in each of those. So do you think the future for GSDs is gene therapy? I would say that gene therapy is probably the best current therapeutic strategy, at least with some variations. And to me, the concept or principle of replacing What's missing or correcting the underlying enzyme deficiency is the best approach to treating these inherited metabolic disorders. And, you know, we have technology, we have delivery methods, mainly with AV vectors to transduce the target tissues that we need to treat in the GSDs, you know, liver, muscle, heart, even the nervous system. You know, based on preliminary safety and efficacy and other related disorders, I'd say that gene therapy holds a lot of promise. However, Clearly, I have a long interest in history of working in the field, so I'm somewhat, I'm somewhat biased. Other approaches are promising. So at least as a treatment, encapsulated mRNA holds a lot of promise. It looks very good in some of the inherited metabolic disorders, including in, uh, at least in preclinical data for GSD-1. In terms of variations on gene therapy, I would include genome editing. And uh, we've recently studied and reported genome editing for GSD-1. Jazz Chu's group at NIH who've worked on GSD-1 longer than me have also reported genome editing. And the need there is to treat very young individuals 
stably over the course of their life. And so we know the limitation of AAV, that it remains episomal almost entirely, and it'll be lost from dividing cells in tissues like the liver over the lifespan of a patient. But with genome editing, we'll modify the chromosome in the liver with a therapeutic effect, and that'll be stable because all, all the daughter cells from the modified cells will inherit the uh, therapeutic change. So our studies show that genome editing is a more stable treatment in the mouse model and in the dog model for GSD-1. However, the uh, elements for, for genome editing are delivered with AAV, so it's really a modification on gene therapy or you know, alternative approach. Well, I guess that's going to be a wrap then. Well, you know, let me start over. I need a cup of coffee and then this, the second time will be right. <laughs> I wish I was as um, eloquent as you are, you know, before my coffee. <laughs> right. Well, if you would like to read more, please click the link in the podcast description or you can go to the journal web pages and search for gene therapy in GSDs. Do I thank you again for making the time for me this morning, you know, before you had your coffee? You're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.